Well, as we come to God's word now, if you've seen the news this week, it's hard not to be really distressed about Afghanistan. If there's one thing harder than being a woman or a child in that country, I'd say it's being a Christian woman or a Christian child in that country. Already Christian pastors and their families have been visited and some families already separated. One pastor received a message last week. We know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. And by last Saturday, the Taliban were at his door. What would you do in that situation as a Christian family? How would you feel? How would you pray? God, where are you? Are we really to suffer like this? Well, compared to that situation, our troubles may seem very mild. But they're still real. Sometimes in our lockdown worlds, we can feel hemmed in by the threat of chaos, by evil showing itself in people and relationships, and the daily news of disease and death all around us. If we come to the Gospels as those aware of the world's chaos and evil, disease and death, we notice the Gospels have a lot to say to us. Mark chapters 4 to 5 might say, welcome to my world. Our worlds are not so far apart after all. This is a powerful text to come to if we come with the question, where is God in the world's chaos? Where is God in the world's evil? Where is God in disease and death? And how on earth are we to cope with it when it comes? So let's watch what happens in these powerful chapters when chaos, episode one, evil, episode two, disease and death, episode three, come face to face with God. Firstly, where is God in the chaos? See Jesus' command over a storm, chapter 4, 35 to 41. Reading from verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall, literally a mega storm, came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. It reminds me of a trip to Tasmania we made a few years ago. While most of our family were vomiting or trying hard to avoid vomiting in a little boat off the coast of Tasmania... Our son, Samuel, bless him, was fast asleep on the seat. Well, in verse 38, Jesus, too, was completely calm in a situation everyone else thought terrifying. Jesus was in the stern, we read, sleeping on a cushion. He sleeps, but they'll have none of that. They wake him and say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? It's interesting they address him here merely as teacher in a situation like this. Perhaps that's why they're so scared. They didn't say, Lord Jesus, Son of God, eternal, uh, Israel's eternal King, would you watch over us through this? No, teacher, little Jesus, big fear. But look at his majesty's supreme power and his calm use of it. Verse 39, he got up, 
rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. More literally, mega calm, very calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. Literally, they were filled with mega fear. That word mega they used three times. And asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who on earth is this? Mega storm, mega calm, filled with mega fear. It's as though the fear of the storm has now passed in their minds and replaced by the bigger fear of having God in their boat. The natural forces aren't as awesome as this man. And it leads to that mega question. They ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who in the Old Testament controls or calms the storms? Who controls nature? Only God does. Psalm 107 would be worth every hour you give to it in study. It seems Jesus is deliberately being the God of Psalm 107. Jesus does what God kindly does among men in that psalm. And Mark, the author, seems to be aware of it as he tailors this narrative, as he brings it together. Where is God in the chaos? Mark says, here he is. The disciples glimpse it. And they're terrified as they do. I wonder where you encounter chaos. If we think about natural forces, a world out of order, some of us might be very concerned about climate change. Some of us might think God has lost control as we see bursting riverbanks, fires raging across Europe. For others of us, the chaos might uh, we feel might come from the weeks and the months and even years ahead where we just don't know anymore what to expect. Can we travel? When will we see our parents, our children, our grandchildren? And as a church, how can we even think about next month, let alone have confidence about next year and five years' time? Friends, wherever the chaos lies for you, Jesus feels as threatened by it as he did that day asleep on the cushion. He didn't need to be asleep then. But our Lord's sleep shows supreme poise, control, absolute sovereignty, calm. But David, some might ask, when we read of Jesus here, are we reading of God? It's important to realize Jesus is not part of God as we look at a story like this, an account. He's not like one leaf of a three-leaf clover. No, Jesus is the one true God. Where is God in your chaos? Look at him here in the chaos of others. The one true God is right there. The one you trust in as a Christian is far more powerful, more able, more calm than we imagine. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so too Jesus' question is a word for all disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? This might be a very good question for you to ask yourself when you're feeling anxious, worried, afraid. 
I realize anxiety can't be cured at the press of a button, but it's hard to fear other things for long in the Lord Jesus' presence. His poise can become your poise, his calm, your calm, his peace, your peace. Rembrandt has a beautiful painting of this scene, Calm Jesus in a Rocky Sea. And in Mongolia, I had that painting above my desk in the Mongolian Bible College where I worked. Sometimes I'd ask to preach, be, uh, ask to preach and they'd say, David, can you preach? And I'd say, when? And they'd say, well, 11 o'clock. What? It was a spontaneous culture. It seemed chaotic. But even in the chaos, with the waters raging in the picture, I draw my calm from the calmness of Jesus. Bad things happen to Christians, yes, but he's got us forever. Come what may. What about the second threat? What about the forces of evil here in episode 2? Where is God in that? Well, let's have a look from chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, as we see Jesus' command over demons. 5 verse 1, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. So they're now moving into more Gentile, pagan territory. And when a place is godless, it is at the same time satanic. One or the other has the influence, whether the Gerasenes or Gladesville, ancient Babylon or today's Kabul. To worship false gods and idols is to invite the dominance of evil spirits and Satan. The suffering can be subtle, as perhaps we might think of in Japan, or more obvious in a place like Afghanistan. But we can expect Satan will bring with him cruelty, torment, pain. An indigenous pastor I know of warns Australians that the smoking ceremonies now used at our sporting events are not spiritually impotent. They're not spiritually neutral. As Australia leaves Christ behind, someone else will be filling his place. And that evil one brings suffering with him. Look with me at verse 2 as we see that link between spiritual evil and human suffering. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. Now imagine living in tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For some reason, we don't know exactly why, but it's better perhaps for him and for them if he's chained up. But he has superhuman strength, verse 4. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And most distressing is verse 5, the poor, poor soul. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And if this is hard to read, how much harder to endure for this poor, captive soul? But when evil spirits meet Jesus, look what happens. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now we see the evil spirits terrified of Jesus. Then Jesus asked him, verse 9, What is your name? 
My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he, singular, begged Jesus again and again uh, not to send them, plural, out of the area. One man, but a plurality within the man. Why doesn't he or they, the demons, want to leave this area? And in this conversation, who exactly is speaking? Is it the man or is it the demons or both? And why in the following verses do they prefer to go to the pigs? And why do they then drown the pigs? Unsurprisingly, this ugly encounter raises more questions than it answers. What is clear, however, is that when suffering and evil meet Jesus, it meets him on its knees. The yield is only one way. Evil will yield to him. Now that's what's so spectacular about the cross. There the Lord Jesus, for our freedom, voluntarily yields to the forces of evil. But even then, the yielding can only go so far. For the life of God himself can never be extinguished. And so when you know Jesus, you know your only way out of forces much bigger and darker than you can comprehend. Sometimes, occasionally in this life, we get glimpses of the evilness of evil. And we tend to look away if we can. But I'd never want to see pure evil without the shelter of this king of glory at my side. I'm happy to help uh, to learn from self-help material. But these well-meaning authors and bloggers have no idea what humans are actually up against. Eat, pray, love. More tips from Oprah. The world is hungry for help and health and happiness. But it's like band-aiding the measles. It's like trying to block Hiroshima's blast with an umbrella. If evil hasn't yet swept our lost friends away, it is waiting to. Complacent sitting ducks, kept for now by God's restraining hand. But that hand, God warns us, will lift. And their vulnerability to the whims, the unfettered whims of Satan, will lead them to a state which makes Afghanistan look like paradise. Satan would love us to think we can self-help, self-medicate, self-navigate our way through life. That we don't need God. We don't want to be unaware of his schemes, DPC. We need him absolutely, utterly. Yet in the spiritual domain, again, we have no need to fear. For amongst the destruction and fear... Jesus again so calmly heals. I love the picture of verse 15 and the relief Jesus brings this man. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And now they are afraid. Who is this man? Expel him. Perhaps like the Chinese Communist Party. Expel Christ's people. Lock up pastors. Get Christ out of society. And verse 18, though the man understandably wanted to leave this evil domain by getting in the boat with Jesus, 
Jesus wanted others still in darkness to hear. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. You can understand it, can't you? Jesus didn't let him but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. A witness left in the mercy of Christ for the freedom of others in that society. The Apostle Paul says, our fight is not against flesh and blood. And so when the Islamist militants say, we know who you are, what you do and where you live, where to find you, we can recall the Lord Jesus' words to the Christians in Revelation 2. When the Lord Jesus says to the church and the Christians, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. They know where you live, but so do I. I've got you. The Spirit of Jesus strengthens the spirits of his witnesses as we feed on his word and know that he's got us. Martin Luther wrote the hymn. Martin Luther was very aware of, of, of Satan and, and uh, evil. And he wrote in his hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. When Jesus says enough, his days will be over. God in the chaos, episode one. God in the world's evil, episode two. But what about God? Where is God in disease and death? Thirdly, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when I read of this, I think of some of my friends who uh, their child had leukemia. All those trips to hospital, those painful treatments. Christians aren't immune to the disease and death that darken our world. And so in this next section, in verses 21 to 43, the pleading, the suffering, the anguish, the fears of the world are again brought to Jesus' feet. Now many of us instinctively go to the Psalms when we're struggling in life. But the Gospels too, and I hope to, to impress that upon you today, the Gospels too are where God meets us in a more visible way even than the Psalms, where the answers to our prayers can be glimpsed through the relief Jesus offers to others in their distress. Verse 21, when Jesus had again gone... Uh, again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, back now to the Jewish population, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. It's becoming a theme, isn't it? He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Five words parents should never have to say. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus, the merciful, hears this dad's cry and goes with him. 
But there's traffic, verse 24, and distraction. And again, the calmness of Jesus, who slept in a storm, is taking his time. One author says that for an ordinary doctor, this would be medical malpractice. The ambulance siren should be ringing. Imagine the frustration of the father, too, who's trying to lead Jesus urgently to his daughter. Verse 21, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Eyes of faith, steps of faith, touching of clothes, just the clothes in faith. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Jesus then asks, who touched him? He doesn't seem to be in a rush. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, another theme going through these events, reverential fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, now just notice, it seems strange. He says daughter here, but it's the link, I think, to the little daughter that he's also about to heal. The link with the little girl with this daughter. Faith is going to save both. One is 12 years of age. The other has 12 years of suffering. Both precious daughters in God's sight. Both saved through their faith in Jesus. Your faith has healed you, Jesus says. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. There it is again, that message for us, brothers and sisters. Don't be afraid, just believe. In verse 41, Jesus, in complete control, out of the chaos of weeping and wailing, calmly, again, takes her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, of course, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Friends, these gospel accounts are the preview, the short trailer of the coming fixed-up world. These are glimpses of our relief ahead. Eden's true king has entered our broken world and he makes a way for us to join him forever in his true Eden. He hasn't yet spared us of this broken world's evil. But he says to you today, trust me, the same Jesus, the same God is still with you and I'll bring you with this, just through this, just as I've brought others who trust in me through this. Afraid of the world's chaos? Why not instead trust me with it? Afraid of the world's evil? 
why not instead trust me with it? Afraid of disease and death, why not instead trust me with it? Well, let's pray. Our great God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, despite our world's description of ourselves as pawns in a meaningless, unguided, accidental existence, we have today witnessed the character and power of the living God who meets our needs with yourself. Never will you leave us nor forsake us. You are always holding us by our right hand. Holy Spirit, may we realise that we have a greater strength than perhaps we've noticed before, that the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit who lives in us. Lead us to see who Jesus is. Lead us to see what Jesus can do. And in the place of fear and anxiety, lead us to confidence and faith in his name. Amen.